Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. All right, fans, we've got another great episode of the Female Athlete Nutrition Podcast with Dr. Shona Halson. She is an associate professor at the School of Behavioral and Health Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. Previously, Shona was a senior physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport for 15 years. She has a PhD in exercise physiology and has over 100 peer-reviewed publications in the areas of sleep, recovery, fatigue, and travel. Shona is an associate editor of the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, and she was selected as a director of the Australian Olympic Committee's Recovery Center for the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Olympic Games. Shona consults regularly to world's leading brands, including Nike and the Australian Open Tennis Tournament, and I think she's going to guide us in a really eye-opening conversation about recovery and the importance of that for athletes and exercisers of all levels. So Dr. Shona Halson, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thanks, Lindsay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think you're you're quite the expert in this field. And it's interesting from my perspective as a dietitian that I've always valued, you know, nutrition for recovery, but I've noticed myself in a lot of my conversations recently that this is like the focus of my conversations <laughs> about you know, nutrition really, you know, when it comes to being an athlete, it's like our, how we fuel our body dictates how well we recover and how well that workout was even worth it. So I'm super excited to dig into all of this with you. Yeah, no, it sounds great. And certainly you're right. You know, recovery is one of those sort of hot topics at the moment. You know, we sort of went through one of those phases where it was, you know, train, train, train and no pain, no gain. And then now then we started throwing in lots of recovery strategies. And now I think we're getting a little bit more nuanced in how we use recovery and how we periodize it and plan it. So I think as we go along, we've been sort of learning a little bit more about not just how important it is, but then what do we do with it when we've got access to recovery and how do we sort of plan it into our, into our schedules. Oh, and I already love how you just said, plan it into your schedule. You have to plan recovery into your schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly do. And I think uh, that's where it works best, you know, working with athletes who've got a training program. And I think if they don't see that recovery is sort of planned in there, they don't see it as important. They see, oh, they see the training and they think that that's what it's all about. Obviously, we know that you know, you've got to train, but if you can prioritize recovery as well and show that it's important to the athletes and have it scheduled in so they don't skip it, then I think that's when you get the best of both the, the training and the and the recoveries to, to balance out well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I have I have so many questions that are already going through my head right now, but I want to backtrack for a moment. You know, just as an exercise physiologist, you you certainly have 
concentrated. You have a lot of work concentrating on like recovery and sleep, but I'd love to know a little bit about your backstory, how you got into exercise physiology and and how did recovery become such a hot topic for you in your career? Yeah, well, my um, I always wanted to actually be a, a physical education teacher. My dad was a, a PE teacher, so I always thought, oh, that's what I wanted to do. But then as I sort of went through high school, I got really interested in actually sports psychology and I started out studying psychology and then kind of went, mm, I'm not sure this is for me, and then went into, into exercise physiology. I was, I was fascinated by the science and the biology and the physiology. And, and so then um, I started um, some of my early research was actually in chronic fatigue syndrome and exercise and, and, and people experiencing um, excessive fatigue, which then got me interested in working with athletes and uh, so my my PhD was actually in overtraining. So really took that kind of fatigue angle. And then we got, sort of got to the point where I was like, wow, fatigue is complicated and we don't really understand it. And there's so many things going on that maybe if we just explore recovery, that that might be a, that might be a good angle. And then really fortunately, just as I was finishing my PhD, there was a job advertised at the Australian Institute of Sport and the title was Fatigue and Recovery Scientist. And I was like, wow, if there was ever a job for me, this is it. Um, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to, to get it, but it was really funny that I probably had more knowledge on the fatigue side than the recovery side but the job really was and continued to be about recovery and how we help our help our athletes recover not just from you know there was a lot of uh, practical work so directly working with athletes but also research so you know like a lot of countries Australia is really evidence-based so we you know what are these people doing jumping in ice baths like this is this is mad how about we do some science and try to understand does it work does it not work when should we do it so there was a really strong focus on that job of both the research and the service provision with athletes so it was yeah the perfect job at the perfect opportunity uh, at the perfect time so it was yeah it was great yeah yeah, that is so cool. I can see the transition and and how it all kind of like morphed and everything. Yeah, that's, it came together. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, that yeah, chronic fatigue syndrome is such a, a complex and, and interesting thing to study and dive into. Confusing, difficult. <laughs> oh, totally. And I think that was one of the things that why I was interested in it was that like, we just don't understand this. And maybe, you know, when that young, naive student, maybe I can answer all the questions. And I was like, no, I think I just uh, resulted in more questions being asked. But uh, yeah, I love, I love <laughs> fascinating areas like that, that we just don't really know much about and try to add a bit of a bit of science to it. But I certainly didn't do that in the chronic fatigue space. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you've got a lot of answers now in the recovery space. And I thought to kick us off too, I think it'd be great if you could give us a quick explanation of like the definition of recovery. I think people, I think everybody can understand like that it's important, but do you have more of like a, a good definition and how we can understand really what's happening from a physiological level in the body when we use the word recovery and stress the importance of it? Yeah, it's such a good question because I think recovery means different things to different people depending on when you're talking about it and what you're talking about. So um, as an example, one of the first things I did when I started at the Institute of Sport was to uh, I had to design a recovery centre like with some architects and we thought we are going to put in it. So we travelled around everywhere asking people about what they do for recovery and the question I got back was recovering from what injury. And so there wasn't kind of this idea really concrete that we actually need to recover just from training and competition. And so for me, the definition or the way that I think about recovery is bringing the body back to homeostasis or bringing it back 
to balance. So we know that training competition is stressful both from a physical and from a psychological angle. So for me, recovery is, you know, you've stressed the body, you've done some damage, you've got some fatigue. Recovery is about bringing you back to, to the as close as we can to the level that you are at. Um, now, sometimes you don't want to get back to the level you're at. You know, fatigue is not a bad thing. Sometimes you want to get higher. But the idea for me is to try to bring, bring you back physically and psychologically back, back to balance. Yeah, I think that's such a good way of thinking about it. And I, I apologize, but not really. My, my brain's always thinking about it in nutrition terms. Mm, yes, <laughs> and it's like, of course. <laughs> you know, so I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, yeah, you know, something I'm always saying to my clients over and over again is that exercise and training is a process of breaking you down. Mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. a process of breaking you down, breaking your body down. And so when I'm talking to them about the importance of fueling for recovery, it's to get you back up, you know, to from an energy standpoint, maybe, you know, you went into a catabolic state, you lost energy. And now from a nutrition standpoint, you need to regain your energy. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are now eating everything you need for your life in your day. It just means that you made up for that process of what you lost. And so, I like that definition you just explained of coming back to homeostasis, but you kind of expanded on that a little bit further already of, well, maybe sometimes you don't just want to come back to homeostasis. You might want to, you know, improve, right? And I guess that's what training adaptation is all about. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the, you know, the, as I was sort of talking about earlier, I mentioned, you know, we this idea of it was all about the training and it was all about the breakdown. And then I think, you know, we, we know now that, um, you know, elite athletes can train harder and we're monitoring them better and, and, and you know, we're pushing them to, to limits that they never have been really pushed to before in a lot of instances. So um, making sure we've got that balance with recovery in there can help, idea, you know, theoretically help in, improve that, that adaptation and sort of increase, you know, performance over time. But we also think about, and I'm sure you think about this from a nutrition perspective as well, that there are times when it's kind of okay or you may want to drive some adaptation by not being in that perfectly recovered state because there are good things that happen there as well. We just have to time it as to when, you know, the classic one, for an example, might be around ice baths. And there are times when, you know, in a competition block, you know, if you're a a, a rower racing every day, you know, two times a day at, at Olympics, then, you know, maybe, you know, that's where we want to have a lot of recovery strategies for you and, and ice baths regularly may be a great thing. But there may be other times when, you know, you're trying to build up some adaptation and drive some fatigue that we may take it away a little bit. So um, like you periodize nutrition, we think you're now around periodizing recovery and putting things in at the right times. Mm, mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is a simple answer, but I'm going to ask the question. Is there a way to figure out what those best times are to maximize? Like it, what you were just saying, I would I would extract from that when it's competition season and you need peak performance, that's the time to use recovery modalities to maximize like full recovery, full come back to homeostasis versus preseason training, you know, kind of building up whatever your sport is, but your building phase is where you might allow some fatigue for your body to adapt and overcome. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. You've nailed it. And and that idea, you know, for some sports, 
may have a very short preseason, and so and so they end up doing a lot of recovery. Like some of the professional team sports um, that play for a significant number of games, uh, you know, of weeks per year, you know, they're essentially playing all year round. Um, I mean, you look at the NBA. Yeah. Baseball, NBA. I mean, you know, they're playing all the time. So when you talk about periodizing recovery for them, it's probably not really such a big deal because they, you know, they're, they're playing every week, multiple times per week, potentially. And so, you know, you want them to be as good as they can, you know, every, every game counts. Um, but then you might be working with a swimmer who's got one important race every year or every, really every four years, but when they're five years in the last instance, where, you know, Olympic games where it's like, this is what you know what they what they really care about and so there may be periods of time where you know they're really just training and not racing much and and, you know you look at some of these olympic athletes they're just tired all the time it's it's just life and so sometimes there may be periods in their pre-season block or where they're essentially you know building some some endurance capacity or they're just doing lots of long hard slow k's and you know they're trying to build up their fitness where you might take away a little bit of recovery but one of the things I also think is important to consider is there's probably okay so if we think of an example say track cyclist where they do lots of long k's on the road when they're building up their endurance then they start to get on the track and they're doing more sort of short, sharp, high intensity efforts. Then they get into their, then maybe their competition block. So we go, okay, competition block. Yes, every recovery strategy that you can. Endurance, build up phase, maybe not as much. But then also thinking when they're in this high intensity training phase that maybe we can use recovery to help prepare them for quality sessions. So just say they've done a really hard session in the gym in the morning and then coach wants them to do really high quality sharp sessions in the afternoon. Maybe recovery there is not, is really the aim is to prepare them for what they're doing next more so than typically helping them recover from that what they've just done. I mean they're obviously related, but the goal is really to set them up for the next for the next session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. I do work with a lot of collegiate athletes and so I'm thinking about them right now. I think it's pretty easy to kind of periodize your recovery based on your season, but specifically coming to mind is our our track and field and cross country athletes. And I'm throwing in the cross country because they turn into three sport athletes with fall season, cross country, winter, indoor track, and then spring outdoor track. And that's turning into needing recovery all the time. time. That's, you know, all the Mm -hmm. time versus if we do have a track athlete, that's, you know, specific to just track. Now we've got two seasons and that's a little, you know, you've got that longer preseason yeah, I was just thinking about that sport in particular. And then I'm thinking about some of my other clients. I, I work with some obstacle course racers. And they don't seem to have an off season no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> no. So every sport is different. You really have to look ahead at your season. And I think this is important, you know, when you are on a, a high level or a collegiate team, hopefully you have a coach doing that. But there are so many recreational exercisers, and I don't say that lightly recreationally competitive exercisers, high school athletes that, you know, are just pushing, pushing, pushing all the time and maybe don't have that guidance from a coach or a strict schedule. And I think sometimes recreational athletes get themselves in more troubles with under recovery because they don't create these seasons and they need to. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think when you're recreational, you may have additional 
whether it's school, whether it's work, and you're trying to fit in some of your training at odd hours of the day. So, I mean, I just even think about me and when I like to, like when I can fit in exercise. And for me, really the only time is early in the morning. And so then you end up going, oh, well, I'm sacrificing a bit of sleep and you're trying to lose balance and then you're trying to work. And so, yes, the, the elite athletes, you know, might, would be training harder, training harder than me for sure. Um, but then, but then there's potentially options for them to sleep during the day. You know, they have other stresses and other commitments as well. But I just think we can't disregard how how important recovery is and how challenging it can be for them to get if you're in the in the recreational space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to be like a like a Google search blog post. What are your top tips for recovery? <laughs> what are your top five tips, top 10 tips? I don't know. What yeah. are some of these modalities that help recovery? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I'm always going to start with sleep and I'm probably a little bit, maybe not biased in terms of the science because we know it's there, but I do think it's, it's an area that I work in a lot and I do just think it's incredibly important. And when I think of recovery and I've I talk about this all the time, so people are probably sick of hearing me talk about it, but I think of recovery as a pyramid and I think of sleep as the base of the pyramid. It's the foundation. So, you know, when I'm talking to some of these pro athletes who are looking at the next latest and greatest gadget that, you know, goes goes bling and it's shiny and it's fancy and it promotes to do all these things, I'm like, yeah, but you're not sleeping. So for me, you know, the the number one thing that people can do is sleep. And it is interesting because we don't talk about periodizing sleep. You know, we don't talk about, you know, people talk about negative effects of ice bath and negative effects of over-recovery, but we never talk about, you know, oh, maybe we should not sleep as much. It's like we need it. It's so important. There's so many good things that go on. It's a third of our lives or should be and for a reason. So I would always say my number one tip that anyone should be doing, whether you're recreational, whether you're elite, is to really try to optimise and protect sleep as much as possible. I think that's what we don't do. We don't protect it because everything else gets in the way. I'm in complete agreement. Can I cut you off for just a moment? You absolutely can. Because so just to like myth bust me. So there's no such thing as too much sleep or Mm. or there kind of kind of is. (laughs) Well, we don't see it very often. We don't most of the time we 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 tend to uh, see people to get less sleep than than they should. So to see people get more is rare. But sometimes when they're getting people are sleeping really, you know, long hours, it may be that there's some something underlying medically going on. It may be that they're ill. It also could be that we see a lot of people with um, you know, depression, for example, you know, escaping the world by sleeping longer than they probably need to. So that's rare but it does happen but generally speaking what we see is people sleeping less than than they should yeah yeah so if we're if we're ruling out you know medical concerns and you're you're an athlete and you're you know saying i must be fine i've had 7 hours of sleep 8 hours it's like oh you could actually need 9 or 9 and a half and that's not too much yes and i think the yeah the idea is that you know, we talk about eight to nine hours for the for the normal person. So we're probably thinking, you know, more like at least nine, maybe even ten for 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 a high level athlete or someone who's doing a lot of training. Now that's really hard to achieve, and not many people do. And every it's variable. Like some people might need a lot less sleep than others, but I think as a general rule, most people could probably sleep about an hour and a half more than they are probably getting. <laughs> yeah, and I think. 
I think here in the US, I don't have the recent statistics, but I think we have some of the worst sleep across the globe, five, six hours per average American per night. And that's pretty sad. So yeah, it is. And I think that the thing now is that we also know that, you know, how important sleep is for, okay, so if you think, take away the athlete aspect, and we just think about general health and well-being, physical health, mental health, cardiovascular health, obesity, diabetes, like you can link sleep deprivation, and has been linked scientifically to pretty much everything. So um, it is one of those things that, you know, if I was to say, you know, my number one tip would absolutely be let's let's try and get work on our sleep as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. As a, as a quick side note too, my husband who is in the, the US military, he goes through periods of, of his life where there is sleep deprivation, whether it's intentionally, it's just the nature of the job. And as an intimate viewer of that. It is crazy to see how fast things go downhill. And of course, yes. he'll never admit this. So hopefully he doesn't listen to this episode. But, um, he, he, you know, it is just viewing it. It's like, wow, everything just crumbles, you know, everything. Crumbles. Uh, if you're right, everything does mood in particular. I think it's one of the first things that goes and then it just becomes dangerous. You know, if you're driving a car or you're operating machinery, um, you probably notice the mood things, but that's one that's one of the things. But then you know, reaction time and you know, safety, and then you get into long-term health. And I think the thing to understand is is you know, we all know that there's going to be periods where we're not sleeping well. It may be stress, it may be job related, you know, there there will be periods where we don't sleep well. And for the majority of time you look you know, it's that it's not the end of the world, but it's when we do this and we have consistent sleep deprivation for really long periods of time, that's the concern. And I think one of the things that I always try to balance up is we we don't want people to get so perfectionistic and stressed about their sleep that they start to sleep bad. So they go, oh, wow, I heard this podcast and, you know, sleep's really important. And then they get one bad night's sleep and it's everything just goes, you know, goes bad. So I think this idea of, you you know, no one sleeps perfectly all the time. Having bad nights here and there is totally okay. But what we don't want to do is have long-term persistent chronic sleep deprivation because that's just absolutely not good for anyone. And now I, I saw somewhere recently you can uh, fact check this for me, that there's a, a term now for that obsession with sleep tracking that actually hurts your sleep. I see it very, it's, it's draws such a, a parallel to in the nutrition field of orthorexia of people's concern for being healthy, that they actually end up harming themselves, their body, physically, mentally. What is that term in regards to sleep? Yeah, it's orthosomnia. 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 Yeah, so very similar um, as you as you, as you mentioned to the nutrition world, and yeah, it is this idea that you know we can be so perfectionistic about our sleep. We can you know for some people monitoring their sleep is not a great idea. You know, for some people it is, for some people it isn't. It may depend on how you monitor it and what you use. But it's this idea that you be, can become obsessed and so perfectionistic about it that that actually causes you, you probably didn't have a sleep problem before, but now you do because you're monitoring and you're paying too much attention. You're getting perfectionistic about it, and you know the, one of the things that we know is incredibly bad for sleep is stress and anxiety. And what you don't want is your own perfectionism about sleep to cause that stress and anxiety because then that will actually disturb your sleep. So. 
we, we do see it occasionally and it is something that, again, I really try to balance because it is really easy to get people overly concerned about their sleep. I like to see people kind of flexible about it and, and go, well, look, I might have a bad night tonight. It's not the end of the world. I'll do better the next night or I'll, I'll prep a little bit knowing that I'm going to have this block of time where I'm sleeping bad. So I'll try to sleep as good as I can, you know, before you travel or, you know, or things like that. So I think, yeah, this this idea of being flexible around your sleep, it's okay to not sleep perfectly all the time, but let's not get into really long-term bad habits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great advice. I'm definitely one of those people that tracking my sleep and caring about it too much caused, caused more anxiety. So I have learned to become very, very flexible with it. And that I even say a little mantra to myself, which is what you just said, when I'm not, when there's a night I'm not sleeping, and it's very frustrating. I tell myself, well, I guess I'll sleep better tomorrow, you know, and it gives me that hope and something to look forward to. Oh man, I could talk to you about sleep forever, but I'm I'm <laughs> certainly not going through your. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm. Go- I asked you for your quick list of top yeah, yeah. recovery modalities, and we're still on number one. So, yeah. so sleep um, is number one for sure. What are some? What are your other? Yeah, quick I mean recovery, nutrition, and I know you're all you're absolutely all over that, but I you know fundamentally agree that nutrition. Sometimes I debate what goes on the bottom of the pyramid. Is it sleep? Is it nutrition? Is it sleep and nutrition? But nutrition, absolutely one of the foundations. I also think mental recovery is is really important. Now, that may look different to different people in terms of what the modality is. Like it may be music, it may be meditation, it may be just doing nothing, but making sure we think about options for mental recovery. Uh, And then I think there's certainly benefits to things like massage or soft tissue therapy I think there's benefits of water immersion whether that's ice baths contrast baths hot water immersion and then there's some benefits of compression as well and again whether that's compression garments or the pneumatic compression so like the recovery pump type devices so they would kind of be my 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 top ones again I'd spend more time down the bottom of the pyramid with your sleep recovery and mental recovery and then if you're doing all those well I you know start to think about things like massage compression and water immersion as as good strategies that's great and it also I feel like not only is that pyramid and that order makes sense in how important they are, but also probably how much time you need to invest in these things. You already, you know, you already dropped that time reference to sleep and saying that a third of our lives should be sleep. And then you think about what's the next thing that takes up a huge focus of our lives or, or, you know, should is we need to eat every day, multiple times a day for the rest of our lives. So that takes up time. And then mental recovery, while you're thinking all day long, you know, you have 80,000 thoughts a day or more. I don't know how they track that number, but you apparently, so it's like you need that, you know, that's a lot of time going into those three things versus, you know, an hour massage once a week or a 20 minute ice bath or, you know, a 30 minute compression every other night. So those are the things that are are really cool and trendy and, certainly helpful in some situations, but we need to put more effort into those, those other three things. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And, and I find, and maybe it's, I don't know if I'm getting younger or the athletes are, I'm sorry, I'm getting older or the athletes are getting younger. Sorry. I'm definitely <laughs> <Yeah>. not getting <laughs> younger. <laughs> is, uh, is you see this, you know, for a lot of, you know, they, there's a lot of things that are marketed well, uh, marketed on social media. And there's this attraction to the simple, fast, easy things that, 
you know, that potentially actually don't work, but are marketed really, really well. And the things like you would know, you know, in the nutrition space, just, you know, good, healthy eating. It's like, well, that's not, you know, exciting and sexy and, you know, that, but you know, sleep, same thing. It's like, why, you know, I'd much rather be doing other things than sleeping. But unfortunately, sometimes it's those things, the foundational things that people need to work on that don't seem like a whole lot of fun and don't seem like they would make a massive difference that actually do make a difference, a big difference. Yep. I'm saying that all the time too when I'm talking to clients. I'm like, I know it's not sexy, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'm not going to prescribe you this cool new supplement. I'm going to tell you about this thing called carbohydrates. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. That's probably really safe and really effective. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really effective. Hey, fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation so far, and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But first, I want to pause and let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka the fast track to overcome disordered eating and use food as fuel to perform at your highest level. The Female Athlete System of Transformation is my unique program and proven systems to guide female athletes to understanding and implementing the proper nutrition for their sport, life, and health. Myself and my team of registered sports dietitians work one-on-one with clients to address their unique needs and counsel them through the nutritional and behavioral changes needed. Many female athletes who resonate with disordered eating, mental guilt around food and body, relative energy deficiency in sport or female athlete triad, amenorrhea, repeat injuries due to negligent nutrition, or frankly, just a lack of knowledge and understanding on their fueling needs have seen incredible success in the fast track. After years of working as a sports RD, I've compiled the most effective ways for female athletes to learn nutrition, be supported, be challenged, and ultimately find their success with fueling as fast as possible. So don't wait another day. Get to your goals faster by joining the Female Athlete System of Transformation. Look in the show notes or head to the website to book a free call and learn more. Okay, now let's get you back to the conversation. Enjoy. So I thought we could quickly, I just have some like random questions with these recovery modalities. Like already in this conversation, you've mentioned ice ice baths a couple of times. And I think you kind of cracked a joke at like people doing ice bath every day. That's not good. So yeah, when I was a college athlete, I jumped in the ice bath every day because I was sore all the time. And um it felt good. good. So I, <laughs> yeah. what's, uh, yeah, what's the background on that? Like, is it kind of what you were saying before, if it's just about periodization of your recovery or, you know, why do an ice bath? How often and what is it good for? What could it not be good for? Yeah. So I think um, ice baths are one of those things that for some reason people started doing like in terms of from the recovery space, a lot of things that athletes do stem from the medical world. So, okay, if it works for sick and injured people, maybe it'll work for me to speed up my recovery. Compression garments is one of the classics that sort of came from that world. And ice baths is a little bit, has come from that, that, that perspective as well, that, you know, you're lucky to ice an injury. Well, maybe if I put my whole body in, that this is going to help. And we, as I mentioned earlier I started at the Institute of Sport kind of with the idea of I'm going to prove that this is like the most ridiculous thing that people have ever has ever been doing there's no science on this why the athletes jumping in this cold water baths and then started finding hang on this is actually working and we were seeing some some 
pretty positive findings in our athletes and other other people have as well. And so ice baths essentially work for a couple of ways. They certainly drop temperature, which can be effective in speeding up the recovery process. So, you know, the body doesn't like really high core temperatures because obviously it's not safe. And so then to speed up recovery, if you can cool your body down a bit, that's a good thing. There's a lot of hydrostatic pressure in water. So if you're standing, if you're six foot tall, standing up in water covering your shoulders, then there's probably about five times the amount of compression against the the lower limb that you'd see as to wearing compression garments. So, for example, compression garments are probably about 20 metres of mercury pressure. You can see up to about 150 millimetres of mercury pressure when you're standing in water. So there's a lot of hydrostatic pressure, which is is excellent for blood flow and redistribution of, of blood flow, et cetera. So they're the two primary mechanisms. We also know, though, you know, there's something about being in water when you're really hot. That's just really nice. Now, whether that's, you know, very low temperatures or not, but people cooling down and being in water environment tends to there's something psychologically nice about that. And there's some evidence that there's some changes in the brain that might happen as well to make you feel good. So there is some support there for the idea that ice baths are, are good. Contrast baths, so going from the hot to the cold, we know a little bit less about but that's actually the thing that I see athletes do the most. If you've got a facility that has hot and cold and you let athletes do whatever they want, it'll usually be either just the hot on its own because it's like a spa, which is fun, or they'll do the contrast. And in, except if in conditions where it's really, really, really hot, they might avoid the hot water immersion completely and just go the ice bath. But I see a lot of people do the contrast and they really like it. So I think, again, and the contrast is this idea of, again, you know, this redistribution of blood flow. So when you're in cold water, all the blood flow goes to your core to protect the vital organs. And then when you get out or you hop in hot water, there's this redistribution of flow to the periphery. So it's that changing of temperature that might influence blood flow. So we've kind of got, you know, cold and contrast being quite good. We're now starting to understand a little bit more about hot, how hot water can be used more like a passive heat stress in the recovery period as potentially driving adaptation as well. But so for me, I would typically think that we normally would target our recovery strategies around, you know, two to three sessions per week if you're in a hard training block. Uh, I think that's probably enough. We don't, I don't think you need to water, do water immersion after every session. And if you're a football player or you've got a competition where you've got some muscle damage, you might want to do recovery after the game. So two to three to maybe four times a week, I think, is the maximum and loaded more towards competition and maybe taken away a little bit around the preseason. You know, you might still do one, you know, one or two recovery, you know, water immersion sessions in the in the preseason, but you sort of loaded more more towards when you're competing. Okay. Okay. So I can look back to my college career and see where I went wrong. Jumping <laughs> <laughs> in the ice bath every day. Hey, well, look, it's funny in, in that, you know, we, we do have some good science now around sort of how ice baths work and that they do work, but we have a lot less information about the timing of doing recovery and how often it should happen. We're really just at that point where we're trying to balance out this idea of too much recovery and not enough recovery. And, and you know, if, if I'm working with experienced athletes that say to me, like, you know, I worked out in the Australian Open tennis and there's, you know, some famous names that come in there 
that absolute advocates of the ice baths and they are in there every day. And I'm like, okay, you're the best in the world. I think you can probably know what you're doing. Yeah. And then there's other people also really good who don't like it. So I think we're at that point where, you know, if you've got experienced athletes that know what they're doing, I like to let them have some choice and, and, and not just prescribe them to within each of their lives of what they're doing. So a little bit of freedom and flexibility is always nice. Well, yeah, this is a good guideline for people who are just getting into it or want to get into it with the the water immersions of two to three sessions a week, more based around when you're when you're going for peak performance and stuff like that. Now, what about with things like foam rolling? Is is that okay from an everyday perspective? That's what I've been hearing. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> foam rolling is one of those things that it's if everyone at first was like, "This is great," and then there's some science going, "Not so great," and now there's some science saying, "Great." So I think it's leading more towards that it's something that's effective, especially if you don't have access to your your own, you know, um, massage therapist or physiotherapist or or something like that who can actually treat you, and you're left to your own devices. It's certainly you know, and it's something that I actually like doing. I actually feel like it's it, it's helping with some of my sort. I think there's some people, some therapists that don't like it if it takes the place of of their work, which you would not want it to do. If you know, if you can regularly access, you know, if, if you're a decent athlete, you can regularly access a, a, a physiotherapist or, or a, a therapist of some kind. And instead, you're trying to do things yourself. Instead, then that's probably not the best idea. But if you've got no other option and no other access, then I think foam rolling is not a bad thing to do, and something yes that you might do after your hardest training sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And where I've seen people go wrong with that, whether it's clients or friends and family, but some people go too hard on the foam rolling and they end up like hurting themselves and getting sore from foam rolling. And it's like, yeah, that can happen. And so (laughs) that's not good. Totally. It's like any recovery strategy or any you know, any strategy that you're doing around training, you can do too much. You know, you can wear too tight compression and wear it for too long and cause swelling in your feet. You know, you can hop in an ice bath too long and, and get too cold. You can hop in a spa bath for too long and get too hot. And, you know, people use some electrical stimulation sometimes and, uh, you know, things like um, complex. I mean, you can go too hard at too higher intensity and recovery stops being recovery and starts being a stress. And when you've moved from the from it being a nice recovery strategy to something that's adding increased uh, stress, then it's not recovery. It's an it's an additional part of your your workout. It's it, you're not it's not helping you recover. Right. Yeah. No. I think that's a good message to send, especially with the foam rolling. That this should not be a workout. This should be making you feel better, not worse. And I think a lot of people have hopped on the foam roller and felt worse. So not not quite using it properly. Well, interesting. So I, I also want to get into a different topic with you, Shona, of of overtraining syndrome. And I think, uh, how much time do we have left? Because <laughs> this is a big topic. But um, yeah, it's a really good one. Um, so let's just start with, with you for our listeners who might not know what overtraining syndrome is. Can you give us a good overview and definition? Yeah, so overtraining syndrome is is essentially, you know, we move from just fatigue to sort of functional overreaching to non-functional overreaching. And then right at the very, very end when you're in a really bad place is overtraining syndrome. And, and you essentially have to have a decrease in performance for several months. 
and that's usually accompanied by some mood disturbance. And then it usually needs, by definition, needs to take you several months to actually or more to recover from. So it's one of those things that you just don't routinely see as part of your training program. Like it's something that's a that's a real a real problem. But one of the other problems added to that is in the literature, there's almost no studies that really, 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 according to that definition, are are demonstrating overtrained athletes. Because it's so hard to do that, to have performance measures at baseline and then when they're really, really fatigued and then when they're recovered. So we don't know a a great deal about what to really look for with overtraining because I actually don't think it happens that often. So when I was at the Institute of Sport, I think over 20 years, we probably saw about three overtrained athletes. So career-ending overtrained athletes, what we typically see first is people get injured first and that, that's their body's way of saying calm down if you, you've, you've done a bit too much or we see this idea of functional overreaching or non-functional overreaching where they've just pushed themselves really hard and they just need a bit of recovery and they're actually going to be okay this whole idea of real overtraining career ending stuff probably doesn't happen as much in elite athletes because ideally you're working with really good coaches and you've got scientists and you pick it up quickly we probably see it more in recreational type athletes who've got a lot of stress in their life or they're not balancing their recovery so one of the theories of overtraining is that you're not actually overtrained you're just under recovered and with the athletes that I saw who were definitely in that I'm overtrained state they were either trying to do shift work at night or they had significant stress in their life Um, so it was more this under recovery rather than this excessive amount of training. Yeah I've heard a lot of people you know with similar degrees and stuff as you kind of say that too of like let's rename overtraining syndrome to under recovery syndrome um cuz that really explains it a bit more but yeah interesting to hear you say that not too many people at least from an elite athlete standpoint have had it which but it does make sense because you have so many red flags leading up to that point of I'm fatigued I'm tired I'm not performing as well I'm not recovering well and and those should all be your signs of you know hey I need to slow down I need to take some time off I need to change something yeah very true and I think also there may be times where and it it could be in the general population but I I do think there's this link between sort of this post-viral fatigue and overtraining so you know people may have you know Epstein-Barr virus or they may have some of these more chronic fatigue syndrome type issues going on and kind of gets labeled as overtraining but there's probably a medical reason for it and sometimes that's not screened out really well. There may be people with some heart issues. And so I think there's this idea that we need to be a little bit careful around saying someone's overtrained before we've excluded everything else that could be a medical reason why they've got this overtraining syndrome. And you would call it syndrome because we don't really know much about it, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, it becomes a bit of a challenge in, the in I think, more the, the recreational athlete as and as, you know, we've discussed Elite athletes, there's something really going wrong if if a coach and scientists around an athlete have let them get to the state where they're actually overtrained. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for our recreational athletes who we want to give them a good heads up, what are some signs? We talked about decreased performance, so just not getting the same response out of your training, not hitting the the marks, the times, the weights, despite putting in the same or more effort. But there's actual like physiological markers too. I think heart rate 
changes over time? Are there a few other things that like somebody might be able to identify, whether it's a true overtraining syndrome diagnosis or just that overreaching period? Are there a few indicators? Yeah, I think the key ones are obviously performance and mood, and you need performance and mood disturbance for the definition, um, so to meet the criteria of whether you're overreached or overtrained. So it is really interesting that the difference between all of these different states of fatigue is how long it takes you to recover. So there's no information on if you're overreached, your performance drops 15%, but if you're overtrained, it's 40%. You know, we don't have any of that information. So it's really like, oh, you came out of that fatigue hole in three weeks. Mm, You're probably just non-functionally overreached. And so it becomes really tricky to make good kind of comments on where people are because you need to really see how long it takes them to come back but I think there's things that you know that I would I would look at and I think um, I'd, I'd look at their sleep as something that we often see goes wrong before people become excessively fatigued what we do see in this is like late a little bit to mood but if you've got a standard session that you might do so every Wednesday you do this session and it takes you a lot longer to recover from that then that like you normally think, oh, well, by Thursday morning I'm good to go. If Thursday morning you're not good to go, it may mean that you're not recovering well and that can be a sign. We may also see some issues around your perception of effort. So again, you do this session on the on a Wednesday and you know it's funny, you can have an RPE of 10, like you sorry, 20, you can be maxed out and this can be your highest perceived effort that you can do. And you can feel kind of good doing that or you can feel bad doing that, right? So um, I think this idea of your perception of effort, things just feel harder and they feel worse when you're doing them. That can also be a bit of a sign. But, you know, there's some evidence that maybe, you know, resting heart rate might be a little bit higher or, but then it's also really challenging to work out, are you detrained or are you overtrained? Like, because you've probably had some time off, (laughs) So it's messy. It's so messy. It's so, so messy. Well, as a little quick story, as I said, my PhD was in overreaching, essentially. I spent, well, the university and my supervisor spent a lot of money looking at everything under the sun. We looked at stable isotope infusion, so, you know, metabolism of carbohydrate. We looked at every hormone. We put people in a sleep lab. We did all kinds of things. The one the best predictor of how fatigued someone was and how recovered they were was their subjective ratings. So what they wrote down on a piece of paper. So I wasted a significant amount of money. Um, but their perception of being tired and being sore. So when they, when you've got people that are going to give you the truth and they're going to um, tell you how they really feel, that to me is the best indicator of whether someone's going into a bad place or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that must have been so frustrating for you. <laughs> I was like, oh, all this research. I know. It was so funny. I was like, yeah, you, I was kind of, oh, well, let's look at cortisol and testosterone. And let's look at all these, oh, all these immune markers, everything. Not just ask how they feel. That was the best prediction. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I totally believe it, though. It, it makes so much sense. It makes sense in my personal life and in, you know, my research and my career field as well. Yeah, listen to There's your body. a lot to be said to that. Yeah, listen to your body. And oh, how, again, it's not sexy, but... No, it's simple <laughs> as what we all say, but you know, people want a device that's going to tell them you're ready or you're not ready or you're fatigued or you're not fatigued. And it's like, you know that. You know in yourself how you feel. You just got to listen, you got to pay attention to it, and act on it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that that brings up another. I'm telling you another story about my husband mm-hmm. on this on this <laughs> recording. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, just yesterday, uh, he went for a run and finished his run. It was a, it was an easy jog for him. It wasn't the heat, admittedly, but it was an easy jog and not a big deal. And uh, and he's an athletic man, three miles, moderate pace, and his watch tells him he needs three days to recover. He was like, what is this? Why do I need three days to recover? And he's not going to listen to it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know why it's saying that. <laughs> yeah. And hundred, and that's what some of that's the issue that I have with some of these devices is, you know, I trust, you know, that they can measure sleep and wake. Okay. I trust that they can, you know, measure their accelerometry and their speed and those, these kinds of things, heart rate, they probably measure, you know, not naming devices, but many of them can do that relatively well, but then they get out of their lane and they, put everything together to give you this figure. And I'm like, you don't tell us what it is. You don't tell us tell us your algorithm. You don't tell us how you've calculated it. Why should I believe it? And that's when people, like, so if you, you can imagine being a, an Olympic athlete, you wake up in the morning of your final and you've got your watch telling you you need three days to recover. Like disaster. And so, disaster. yeah, and, and we don't even know if that's true or not. And so that's where I think some of this orthosomnia too comes from with some of these devices is you get this this number that's telling you something and it's like we don't even know if it's true. So I just think look at the hard the hard data that comes from them and when they give you this generic figure or this generic score or this generic you need three days to recover, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. 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 He was looking at to me as the expert to explain it to him. And I said, I don't know, let's figure you're fine. Just if you feel good tomorrow, go for a run tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, this, this whole overtraining and overreaching thing, you know, I don't know that I have a specific question for you on the show now, but I just want to share some of my experiences as a dietitian. I work with a lot of athletes who are definitely under recovering from that nutrition perspective, right? And so it's been interesting, like from a research standpoint, I've been working a lot with clients who resonate with having relative energy deficiency in sport or red S. And they also like, you know, a lot of the the symptoms, I would say, just overlap with overtraining. And then the type of person who might have red S is also the type of person who's more active and and doing more physically and pushing their body and not recovering and i've i've had a few clients over the years where i'm like wait is this you know you know and i have ways to kind of i just deal with the nutrition i'm like well we got to deal with this no matter what you know we got to get you fueling properly but it is such a weird overlap of different like terminology but i think you i again this isn't really a question but i think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's under recovery and the way you already explained it on this podcast of the pyramid with nutrition being one of the the base foundations it's like if you're if you aren't recovering and eating and fueling properly you could easily fall in the trap of overtraining overreaching and or red s it you know w- one of those is going to happen exactly and it, and the way i see it is it, it's a stress to the system that's uh, an additional stress to the system. You know, if you're not getting your adequate nutritional intake, you've got your training stress, you've got your nutritional stress, and if you're not, you know, you're not providing the right recovery in the form of whatever that looks like, then yeah, you certainly open yourself up to to things going wrong. And whether you know, and the body, it's funny, it's you know, as you know, it's really resilient, but only up to a point. So we can do a fair bit of damage for a reasonable amount of time before. You know the you know the, the the red light comes on and it's like okay now the body's saying it's like it's like when you don't sleep for a significant amount of time you tend to get sick and that's the body's way of sort of forcing us 
to pay attention and to slow down. And I think, you know, reds and those kinds of things as well, it's, it's another, it's a bit of a, a wake up call, I think, to say something's not going well here and we need to correct that. And taking care of your nutritional recovery or your intake is one way to sort of manage some of that or, or get back from that sort of stressful situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just love going down that kind of checklist of, you know, when something's going wrong, let me address my sleep, let me address my nutrition, let me address my mental recovery. Yeah. And then let me use some of these little modalities, massage, foam roll, you know, something little and and to, to include probably from the nutrition side supplements you know those are the little things <laughs> yes that's it um and i on the cake they're not the cake you know the cake yes. is you know the the good stuff the sleep the nutrition the downtime mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay i have one final question i'm embarrassed to ask it but <laughs> go for it <laughs> i'm embarrassed because i'm like oh it's probably a stupid question but there's no mm-hmm. stupid questions no, right people nope. people ask me is questions all the time when it comes to food. So when we are, 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 you know, let's leave professional athletes out of this because I think they're maybe in a different category and let's go towards just somebody who's, who's competitive, but you know, still recreational, maybe a high school athlete, maybe a post-college athlete. Is there like an, a guide or a go-to for like just rest days? Like how many rest days should we take and and a difference between a rest day versus an active recovery day where we're getting on the bike but for more of a you know not pushing ourselves is do you have any sort of guidance for that or is it us is it listen to your body again yeah no it is a really good question and it's hard to it is a little bit hard to answer I guess it does depend on the sport to a certain extent I mean you look at most elite athletes would they would have and sorry, I know we're taking the, the general that we're thinking about recreational, but if you start from an elite athlete point of view, most of them would have one to two days off per week. So they'd have probably have a Sunday off and then some of them would have like a afternoon off of a Wednesday or something like that potentially. So one, one and a half, maybe two days off completely. So for individuals who are doing that much exercise and they're still taking that time away, I think I think that's important. So I think, yes, listen to your body. I think everyone should be aiming for at least one day off. If you're doing something like an active sort of active recovery day where you might just get, I mean, you look at the Tour de France, the guys ride on their days off, you know, so, and it's not hard. And I think that's the thing is it has to be a recovery ride rather than something that's too strenuous. So there's some cool work that's been done that's looked at coaches' intention for the training week and what the athletes actually do. And it turns out that the hard days that the coach sets are never as hard. The athlete doesn't quite do them as hard. But the easy days the coach sets, the athletes never do as easy. And so I think this idea of kind of listening to your body, knowing when you need a rest, accepting that it's okay to have a rest and that you do need days off. And if you're doing something that's an activity, just making sure that it doesn't add any extra fatigue to your day. So it's really one of those things that should be just light and easy and, you know, just ticking the legs over if you're on the bike because you're just having fun. If it becomes not fun or hard, then you know, you're probably pushing it too hard. But I would say looking for at least one full day off 
maybe up to two days if you're if you're pretty serious. And then, you know, even a third day off is not a problem. You know, people need to remember, I think, that the adaptation, the benefits, the good stuff happens when you rest. If you're not resting enough because you're stressed or you're working lots or you're training early and you're not sleeping, then you may need the extra day because that's when the good stuff actually happens. Mm-hmm. I love that. The good stuff <laughs> happens when you rest and recover. Yeah, that's why... At- there's athletes that would love to train 24 hours a day to get the benefits, but it doesn't work that way. You just break down, break down, break down, and the recovery the recovery is needed to bring you back. And if you're doing a lot of breakdown, you know, whatever that's from, training, stress, no sleep, then you're going to need more time to, to come back and, and just listening, as we say, I keep saying, listening to your body, and, and, but accepting that it's okay to have days off. Um, a lot of people do struggle with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I truly hope that our listeners take that advice seriously and <laughs> and do that. And I'm yep. I'm glad that we're my train of thought has always been you know at least one day off a week at least, and to plan that in. Right, that's how we started this conversation. Actually, was plan yeah. that in. <laughs> totally, we brought it back to the start. Yeah, it's important. There we did. It's important. You plan it in. So mm-hmm. plan it. It's part of your training is to actually recover. So. Oh, beautiful. What what a helpful conversation, Shona. This has just been uh, so great to have you on. I do like to ask a few fun questions yeah. if you're willing to play along I, to wrap this I, up. I like fun questions. <laughs> if I can give you a fun answer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. This first question is my favorite. If there was one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? <laughs> it would have to be chocolate. Standard yes. answer, but oh my gosh, of, of every variety, white, dark, milk. <laughs> yeah. Chocolate. Anything, as long yeah. as it's chocolate. As long as it's chocolatey, I'm up for it. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. It's a good answer. My the chocolate's up there for me too. What is your favorite sport to participate in yourself? Um, I used to do a lot of running and loved it, but now I've I've started on the cross. I've started doing CrossFit, which is hilarious because I never thought I'd say I'd been doing that. But I just love the social aspect, and yes, I've started doing lifting, which I think is important as we age to you know protect those muscles. So yeah, I've been lifting weights, which is not something I thought I'd ever say in my life. I love that. And yeah, it's a a great like community that they've built of motivating each other. And yeah, a great community aspect. Awesome. What is your favorite sport to be a spectator of your favorite sport to watch? Yeah, track cycling in the flesh, track cycling, just the speed they get to how high the banks are, how close they get to each other, how they've got no brakes. Track cycling for me is the absolute thrill to watch. Yeah, that's scary. I've never seen it in person. I've seen it on TV and you're just like tense the whole time. It's, yeah. it's and rather it, scary to watch. It wasn't until I got to a real, watched a real event that I actually saw the got real perspective on how high those banks are and what they're doing and how incredibly skilled they are and how brave they need to be. So, yeah. Amazing. And then final question, is there a female athlete, whether professional or in your personal life, that you just think is a role model and inspiring doing a lot for female athletes across the globe? Who would you want to give a shout out to? My favorite and one of my absolute favorite athletes is she's retired now, but she's regarded the best female track cyclist in the world ever. Um, Anna Mears, Australian athlete. She had a serious crash before Beijing and probably should not be able to walk. Came back, won multiple gold medals. Yeah, she's commentated in Tokyo and she was just brilliant, super smart and just doing, yeah, doing really great things. 
in sport and in a lot of other areas. So yeah, Anamiz has always been a bit of a a bit of a, a a hero in my world. So Anna for me. That's amazing. What a story. I'll have to look into her. Yeah. I track cycling, like I said, I haven't been following that sport much myself. So no, it's a good very, one. very cool. She's an impressive individual. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shona. Again, we appreciate your time, your expertise. We'll include some of your like publications and ways to contact you and things like that in in our show notes, if that's okay with you. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you. Like like I said, you've had so so much research in this area. So thank you for your time and take care. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the great questions. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S and download the red S recovery race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, female athlete nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S that's backslash R E D S. And you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.